these prophets. Think about the mercy of God in that God would send message to anyone. That God would care enough to communicate with anyone, with us, with them. That God would, would be merciful and gracious enough to let himself be known. That God would send announcement. Even if it's, it's, if it's announcement of judgment, God has sent announcement to people like us, just really collected dust with breath, and God is willing to speak from heaven to people like us. Is God's mercy that we hear from him at all. But when we come here to Micah, we're going to find that Micah was ministering, a contemporary of Isaiah, Micah is ministering here in the 8th century B.C., and he's going to witness the fall of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north, Israel, they, they were called. And then Micah is going to also prophesy about the end of the southern kingdom of Judah. And I think really the best summary of Micah is given by actually the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah summarizes Micah's work here in and brings it back in Jeremiah chapter 26. There's a little quotation there from Micah chapter 3. And he uses this as reminding that Micah preached and Micah was instrumental, you might say, in Hezekiah's reform and Hezekiah's revival and resistance of the coming invasion from Assyria. And so Jeremiah gives a lot of credit to Micah for that. And so Micah was preaching particularly along time frame of King Hezekiah there of Judah. And so it'll be about a little bit over a hundred years later that Judah will fall after Micah's ministry. But now that you found the book of Micah, you can see um, that it's divided into three different messages. There's really three different messages that divide this book up. Chapter 1 and 2, and then chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, and then or chapter 3, 4, 5, and then chapter 6 and 7. There's, those are the three divisions there, and they're marked in your scripture. You'll see that by the word hear, by the word hear, as in to listen, hear. And you see that in chapter 1, verse number 2. Micah says, hear, all ye people, and that marks his first message. And then you look at chapter 3, where the second message began, and, and Micah says, and I said, hear, I pray you, O heads of Jacob. So he's, he's bringing their announce, he's, he's announcing it, and he's calling them to pay attention. And chapter 6 begins basically the same way with that call to attention. Chapter 6, verse 1, hear ye now what the Lord saith. So that's how Micah is divided up. And we're going to look today at this middle message, the middle message of Micah, chapter 3, 4, 5. And we're going to read from chapter 5, the first six verses. So we're in Micah chapter 5, the first six verses. And I encourage you, I ask you to keep your Bibles open when we're done reading. We're going to be looking, digging into the details here and looking at maybe another passage or so. But keep your Bibles open after we're done reading because we're going to refer back to these verses over and over again. Micah chapter 5. Now gather together in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. And they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. 
Therefore will he give them up until the time which she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now shall he be great until the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our palaces. Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. We thank God for the reading of his holy word this morning. Let's think about what's happening here in chapter number 5. And let's look at the context or the setting that we're, we're picking this up in. When we come to chapter 5, uh, verse number 1, it's really a, a stark picture of hopelessness, you might say. It's a, it's a real clear picture of desperate times and of desperation and of coming destruction. Look at verse number 1 again. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughters of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. This is, this is a clear picture of, of a people that are in, in danger, people that are no doubt under the punishment or the judgment of God. And th- this phrase here that begins, that begins chapter 5 really is, is an odd one. Not, you're not going to find it really and be able to compare it to a lot. But now gather thyself to troops, the daughter of troops. Um, what's going on here is that there needs to be a gathering because we're going to either have to fight or flight. We're going to have to either retreat or we're going to have to try to resist. And either way, it's going to be difficult. Either way, but we need to be organized. We need to be gathered together here. And in fact, this, this phrase where we have it translated, um, gather thyselves, it, it might actually be more about the idea, some modern translations go with slashing yourself or striking yourself. And so, and we might be more, more familiar with the idea of how when someone is in great distress or mourning in the Old Testament times, how they rent their clothes, how they, they rip their clothes and rip, rip shreds out of it. So it's, it's a symbol or it's a, a picture of someone who is in great distress, someone who is clearly suffering and, and terrified of what's going on. They're, they've been moved with, with despair. But no matter what the action is, if it's a gathering or if it's, it's slashing or, or even cutting yourselves, it's, it's clear that the picture is that trouble is all around. Look at verse number one still. That they've got the, the city or the land surrounded. It's about to be overwhelmed. He hath laid siege against us. That's what that means. They're, they're gathering into troops, what we might think of as divisions or some sort of organized mustering of, of forces. They're either going to have to run away or they're going to have to resist one or the other. It's going to be hard no matter what. No matter which way it goes, it's going to be difficult. There's a guarantee of suffering. They're surrounded. They're about to be overwhelmed. And so what this is really showing us is that the people of God here, God's, God's people, it's a, reali- it's a realization that their best efforts have failed. Their best efforts have, have come to this. This is what it's come to. They wanted a king. A little bit over 300, almost 400 years ago, they wanted a king, and now this is what it's come to. Their best efforts to live in this world as God's people by their own ideas and by their, their own way of living and 
by having their own rulers and picking who's going to lead them, this is, what it, this is what has happened. It's come to this. Basically, the call to gather up, get everybody get together because we're either going to have to run away together or we're going to die together. And they've got us surrounded. And then the ultimate humiliation is about to happen. The ultimate humiliation here in verse number one is that their leader, the one who should be the last one to fall. This isn't just a soldier who falls in battle or who is taken captive or who gets struck. This isn't just a soldier. This isn't just a guard of the temple guard. or This isn't just one of the palace guards. This is the one in charge, the one at the top. Their leader of the people is being taken and is being mocked and being humiliated and being struck on the face. When we say it's struck on the face with a rod, it's probably taken the scepter out of his hand. That scepter, that that diadem that they might rule with and be the symbol of their authority and the symbol of power in that, in that figure is being stripped out of their hand and instead of being used as a symbol of authority, it's being used as a weapon to insult and to beat across the face of their ruler. This is a picture of ultimate humiliation in the time of ultimate failure of the people. And you see, now we're being said, Get together because this is basically going to be our last stand. And humiliation is upon us and failure is all around us. The best we've done is it's it's completely failed. And so what is Micah Micah talking about? Well, there's actually several instances in the, the time frame in the history of the nations of Israel and Judah that this could have referred to. There's actually several times that you could apply this, this verse to. Um, the nearest possibility would be that time when King Hezekiah foolishly had tried to buy protection. Remember, he stripped the gold out of God's temple and sent it on to the evil king of Assyria there. He sent it out to Shennacherib and thought that that would be able to buy his protection. But, of course, that did not satisfy the Assyrians. And they came and they surrounded and they laid siege and almost got all the way into Jerusalem. And it wasn't but a last-minute effort, not on the part of the people, but on God. You remember in the middle of the night how God went across and 185,000 of the Assyrian army were slain by God in the night. That's the only way they were escaped out of that. But Hezekiah was certainly humiliated by his failure and by the siege. But then there are other instances of surrounding Jerusalem by enemies coming in. And of course, at the end of the time of Judah, at its last king, when Zedekiah was there, the Babylonians at this point, now they come in and they besiege Jerusalem again. And for over years, and they take everything out and eventually they ultimately humiliate and make a mockery of Zedekiah, who was Judah's last king. So no matter which way you're looking at this, this could be fulfilled several different times, honestly, across the history of the people. But why did we end up here? Why did this end up like it did? It wasn't but just about 300 years earlier, and we have even visiting dignitaries from other royalty across the globe coming to see Jerusalem because of what they've heard about it. Most, most familiar to us would be the Queen of Sheba. How the Queen of Sheba had heard so much about Jerusalem that she wanted to come visit and see if it was really true. And when she came and she toured with Solomon and she saw all of it, at the end of it, she said, it's even better than I've heard. It's even more glorious. So what has happened over these 
few hundred years that has led us to, from being the envy of the world to being humiliated and being failures. What's happened here? Well, you might just blame the world system around Israel and Judah. You might say, well, evilness in this world, and there's, there's evil men like Shennacherib, and there's evil men like Nebuchadnezzar leading evil empires like the Assyrians or like the Babylonians. And there's just uh, greedy and evil, wicked people out there, and they, they're against the forces of good. And no doubt, no doubt there are. No doubt Satan and the forces of darkness work against God's people and work against good. And that comes against us. And that is a reality. But nothing external to the people is blamed for their condition. If you look at Micah chapter 3, you have your Bible still open there, look at chapter 3. And we'll get Micah's diagnosis of what's going on. And his diagnosis is totally internal. How did we get here? What happened? Well, what happened is that the people failed to follow after God. And the people were given over to their own evil inside of them and inside of their own nation. God used the world powers, but that was not the world powers that caused this failure. It was the internal that caused their condition. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9, and this is sort of Micah's summary of what's going on in the time and in the nation. Chapter 3, verse 9, Hear this, I pray you, you heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel. And this is his, his description of these, these leaders, the leadership in charge. He says, That abhor judgment, they hate judgment, and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come against us. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become as heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high place of the forest. Micah announced that the nation is to be plowed like a field and to be left in heaps. And it is what there in verse number 12? It is for your sake. It's not because Nebuchadnezzar can't be satisfied. It's not because Shennacherib's evil and greedy. It's because it's for your sake. And here particularly, Micah is laying this at the feet of the leadership. He's looking at their political and their economic systems. And he's saying, you don't have justice. You don't have equity. But you're doing it out of selfish motives. You're taking advantage of the people. You're building it up with the blood of the people. You're sucking the people dry so that you can promote yourselves, make yourselves rich, and have your own selfish ambitions. And, but then it's not only the economic, it's not only the government leaders, it's also the religious systems. Look there in, in chapter 3, verse 11, and he says, not only those, but it's also the priest. And what are the priests and the prophets doing? But selling their sermons for whatever pays the best. Whatever pays the best is what they preach. This is a message from God, they say. They say it's from God, and they say it's from God because it pays well to say that everything's good. We're great. God's with us. God's for us. And that pays well, and so that is their message. That's what they preach. And so it's all internal. And these are just the outworkings of what's in the heart of the people. It's not as if the people who are poor or the people who aren't in charge are somehow 
somehow, you know, virtuous, and they're, they're, they have all good motives. But this is just who's being promoted among the people, and this is what's working out. This is just the, the symptomatic release of what's in the heart of the nation. How did the people get here? How does Israel and Judah end up at this place of humiliation and of failure? They get here because their heart is full of wickedness and they are rebelling against God. It's not the external. It's the internal that's the problem. This might be a sobering moment for you too. It's easy, it's easy and it's almost natural for us to look externally for problems. Something's not going right. I look around me and see all the other things that are against me. Some, I'm, I, I ended up in a bad spot. I look around me and say, well, if I hadn't been at that place, or if I hadn't been around that other person, or it's easy to blame everything else. It's easy to blame what's going on around us. But the reality is that our problems are just revelation of the condition of what's inside of us. It's just the outworking of the truth in, inside of us here. And so they can't blame Shennacherib. They can't blame Nebuchadnezzar. Micah says the problem is the way that we live and the way that we've rebelled against God. Maybe you feel this reality of failure and humiliation. Maybe you feel it worse this time of year. Cold days, dark, dreary, short, short days. Maybe it cuts cuts in a certain way this time of year. The year is ending, and maybe your best efforts this year have left you no better off than you were at the end of the last year. And there, there's something that I think all of us can relate to. But I would fail in my duty today if I were not plain and clear with you that there is a righteous God in heaven who will judge both the great and the small. And there is no external excuse that you will be able to cast your failures off onto. There is no one else, no one else out there. There's no wicked system. You won't be able to blame the liberals or the progressives, or you won't be able to blame the church failures or the religious people around you who didn't do this or that. There's a righteous God in heaven who we will stand before. And we all have to struggle with this reality that we, in our best efforts, are not enough. Judah and Israel had been the envy of nations, but here they are in verse number 1, and at the end of their history, humiliated and failures. And God's people here are going to be forced to see that their best efforts cannot cut it. And so it is with all of us. Any of us who put our hopes for eternity on nations or on kings or on leaders or on uh, religious traditions, any of that, it, it's going to come up short. It's going to end up in humiliation, like chapter 5, verse 1. But now we see here that we have the situation that God's people are in, but we're about to see the swing of prophecy stretch the vantage point to a different to a different view. Um, this, this past July, this past July, uh, almost, you know, half a year ago, Jana and I decided to go try to be young again for one, one last day. 
And so we went ziplining. So we went ziplining. You know, you're, you're attached to this cable in treetops, and you just zip across the skyline to another treetop, and, and we're still here. So there you go. So um, we went ziplining. But the place that we went to, they, they sold us also a, a ride on a giant swing. Ride on a giant swing. Some of y'all probably have seen this. Um, it's, they share the parking lot with Tweetsie up there. And so if you're thinking about some of you, those of you who have seen it, let me tell you, it's a lot higher than it looks, okay? Um, but this giant swing, they, what they do is you have, to be, you have to be the harness. You have to strap in and, and clip on. Every, you, it's, you have to, all that stuff. And they, they pull you up. They pull you up 45 feet high. Four, it's like being on the top of a four-story building, okay? And then when you're on this swing, you're up there for a moment, and you're, you're looking naturally at the ground where you're about to die, and you're thinking that's where it all ends. But, but you swing from this 45-foot-high part, and you swing out and back. And really, the more I thought about it, the more we're swinging, and maybe we're covering maybe 50, 60 yards on, of ground space, maybe. But in, in, in a real sense, we didn't move at all. We didn't really move at all. The whole time, we were in the same seat, and we were the same length on that cable from, its, from wherever it's secured at the top of the tower. The whole time, from the top of that tower, we are the same length apart. No matter where we were, we were at the same part. But you're looking. You're looking first. You're looking down, down, down. Then you're starting to look up, up, up. And then you're looking up a little less and up a little less and looking down, down, down. And that's kind of what, what we see here in the prophecies. That's kind of what we see here. It's, it's not that things are really moving. You're not really moving in a sense. We're still here in Micah. Micah's still seeing the nation, still seeing God's people. But yet you're going to see... The swing is going to come out, and you're going to be looking at a different vantage point. Not moving all that much, but really you're looking at something just a little bit different. And you're seeing it from a different viewpoint. And so I think maybe that helps us to understand a little bit of how this poetic prophecy is given to us. Oftentimes, it's the, the prophet is carried along by the Spirit, and it, the viewpoint or the aim point changes just slightly, and you see something different off in the distance or maybe nearer, than we were before, and we move back and forth, just like on that swing, how you're never really moving that much, but you're seeing so much different. And so as we end up verse number one with desperation, devastation, destruction, humiliation, we come to verse number two, and then the swing of prophecy changes our viewpoint. It changes the vantage point that we're looking at. And so verse number two, we're going to look here, and Micah's going to swing out a little bit. He's going to swing more away from the field of devastation, and he's going to swing over that field of grace. Verse number two, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. You see in verse number one, we have the people's leader, their representative, the best of their human achievement is humiliated. But here in verse number two, there is a different ruler coming. There's a different ruler coming here in verse number two, and he's coming forth unto God, and he's not like the other ones. Now we're moving from destruction and failure. We're moving to something of hope and from something everlasting. The people here have They've brought on their own destruction. But this king is different. 
This ruler is different. And he's not from where you would expect. First thing we see about him is that he comes from Bethlehem. What child is this who comes from Bethlehem to be ruler over all of God's people? Micah here is looking a little bit further out. And he's seeing that there is a one born in Bethlehem. And what child is this from Bethlehem? You see, Bethlehem was, it said, the only thing that we see here about Bethlehem is that he's little. It's really just trifling, you might say. It's not even worthy to be counted really among the, the cities or among the area. It's little among the thousands of Judah. It's really not even big enough to be listed and to be considered about one of the, the tribes or the villages or the, or the cities of Judah. And yet, Bethlehem, though it is small, certainly not absent from the biblical record, not absent from biblical history. If you look all the way back into Genesis, we find that Jacob buried Rachel here when she died there. And then we think about Bethlehem again, and we see that Naomi and Ruth, they returned, and where did they find Boaz? But back at Bethlehem. And then you, you read a little bit further on, and then we come to really where we need to connect to, we find that God sends Samuel to anoint the second king, and he sends them to Bethlehem to see Jesse's sons there at Bethlehem. This is the hometown of Jesse. This is where this family was from. And so when Samuel gets there, of course, he looks, and God tells him, no, not that one, no, not that one. You're looking at the wrong son, looking at the wrong son. And so it is in Bethlehem. This isn't Jerusalem. This isn't where the kings were living. This isn't where the palace was. This isn't where the center of culture and the center of human, you know, scientific achievement and arts were being. This isn't someone born in a palace as a king, but this is someone who will be born in Bethlehem with the poor and with the lowly and with the common. This isn't Jerusalem. This is Bethlehem. And so it was when Samuel went to Jesse's house. It wasn't the biggest one. It wasn't the oldest one. It wasn't the strongest. It was, no, it was the smallest. It was the youngest. It was the one out in the field with the sheep. And so the connection here clearly is made to King David. The connection is clearly made to King David. And even beyond King David, it's made to the throne of David. And this is God revealing to Micah that says, No, there's going to come one who is going to be the second David. Who is going to be a greater David. And he's going to be as David was from Bethlehem. But he's going to be unlike David. He's going to be greater than David. And David's throne, which God had promised would endure for all eternity, in fact, will have one to sit on his throne. At the time of the fall of Judah, there King Zedekiah, after he is taken off and he is humiliated, David's throne was sitting vacant, was sitting open in human history. But we have one coming who will be born in Bethlehem who is from of old and who is everlasting. And though it looked like it was vacant in human history, in God's timeline, things were right on track. And there was nothing amiss. You see, coming from Bethlehem shows us that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God uses the little things of the world. This is exactly how God works. God doesn't look to the palace in Jerusalem, but God looks to the small, little, nothing area called Bethlehem. And so we see here that he is also not only from Bethlehem, but he is to God. 
He is unto God. He is for God, this ruler. What child is this that is going to be born in Bethlehem, but is not born for his parents, is not born for his city, not born for his nation, but he is born for God? Verse number two says, Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, God says. He's coming forth unto me. This shows us that this child, this child that is born in Bethlehem, will always be about God's business. He will always be doing the will of God. And he will have a solemn purpose to when he comes. And that will be to carry out God's plan. This is unto God. This is for God. But not only is he for God, but this child is born old. He's born old. He's born from old times or from eternity or from everlasting. I wonder, um, in, our, in our modern technology, we can have really clear pictures of a baby in its mother's womb. And they have technologies to be able to do those sorts of things. And you can really see basically what the child looks like long before it's ever born. But I wonder, do any of you have any, any other photos of you hanging out anywhere before you were born? I mean, did you ever, you know, you ever make a trip down to the beach or maybe go up to the mountains or catch a show somewhere before you were born? Well, of course not. That's ridiculous. What am I talking about? Well, look at verse number two. Look what we're told. Whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Before he was born, he was active. Before he was born, he was moving around. He was doing things. He was traveling here and there. His goings forth have been from old. This is not just a lineage back to David, but this is beyond David. He was before David. He will be the son of David. He will be the greater David. But he was before David. This baby will be born not young like all of us. He will be born from eternity, from everlasting. What child is this who is both born eternal and yet is born into time? This is eternity coming into time. And so we see also that this this leader is going to be a shepherd king. Verse number three tells us that there is going to be another time. We're going to swing that prophecy out a little bit. The vantage point's going to change. We're going to have this ruler who's going to come. He's going to be unlike any other. He's going to be a, the greater David. But yet, verse number three tells us there's going to be this time where it's going to be difficult. The immediate future and the present for God's people is going to have struggle. It's going to have suffering. And it's going to have a time where we're going to have to wait. But then we come to verse number four. And we're told that he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. Verse number four, he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. What kind of job does that sound like? What kind of work is this? Standing? I mean, that's kind of the idea of being on guard or being at a a post. Standing there and feeding. What kind of job is that? That, that You know what that is? That's the work of a shepherd. It's the work of a shepherd. He is going to pastor his people, you could say. Uh, A modern translation of this says, He will assume his post and shepherd his people by the Lord's strength. So he will be the one who guards this child. What child is this who's going to be a shepherd of God's people? He will feed them. He will protect them. He He will proclaim God's name to them. Look at verse number four. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. 
as he protects and feeds the people, he's doing this in the name, that means in the character, that means as a representative, that means proclaiming the name of the Lord their God. This is the shepherd king who will operate with the authority of heaven on earth. And he will do this and he will make a place for God's people to belong. Look at there in verse number 4, right in the middle of the verse. And they shall abide. Israel's fallen. Judah and Jerusalem is going to fall. But in this baby who was born old, born for God in Bethlehem, God's people will have a place. God's people will have a place where they can go in and go out and find pasture. They will have a place to be fed. They will have a place to be protected. They will have a place of connection where the vine is connected and where we can draw our substance and where we can draw our needed provisions and where we can grow and mature. They will abide in this shepherd king. What child is this who provides perfect security and perfect assurance for God's people? What child is this where we can abide in him What child is this who is the connection point between God and man? Not only is he all these things, but the last part we can look at this morning in verse number 5. Verse number 5 at the beginning of the verse. This man shall be the peace. This man shall be the peace. Not saying what he brings will be their peace. Not saying the government he sets up. Not saying the the programs that he installs. Not saying the message that he teaches. But he is peace personified. You could say that this man is peace in the flesh. He is peace. He is their peace. Now, in most of life, in most of life, you don't want to put your investment all in one thing. In most of life, you want to be diversified. And if, if you're on a team, you don't want to just have one player who's the focus of the team. You want, you want to have a team work together. If you're, if you're investing, if you're doing business, you want to be able to have a lot of options. We're, we're told all along to don't put all your eggs in one basket. But let me tell you, when it comes to peace when it comes to safety, when it comes to a place to belong and to be connected to God, there is only one man. There is only one shepherd king. There is only one child born of old in Bethlehem. There is only one who came to always do the Father's business, and it is this ruler of Israel that Micah is telling us about. He singularly is it. He alone is eternal. And he is peace. Now David was a man after God's own heart. And David built Jerusalem up and set it as a city on a hill. And David had a, a palace and David set the place for the, for the temple and gathered all the materials. But David never brought peace. David was a man of war and a man of bloodshed. And all those after David and all of those kings who sat on the throne there in Jerusalem, as good as some of them were and as much revival and reform as Hezekiah and Josiah brought, none of them ever brought peace. And what what we would pay for just peace in our life. 
And still today in all of our advancements, in all of the United Nations, in all of the World Health Organizations, in all of the treaties, in all the global advancements in medicine and in technology, still today there is still no peace. But there is one who is peace in the flesh. What child is this who is God's peace? What child is this who is the end of all the struggling, who is the end of all the fighting, who is the end of searching for the elusive peace? What child is this who was active from ancient times, who was born old? What child is this who is the place where we can dwell forever with God? He is peace. He is peace. Now for the nation here, they have failed. They've been humiliated. They've done everything they thought they could do. They did it their way, and it's a failure, and it's humiliation at the end. But there is peace available through this baby born in Bethlehem. For God's people, for all of us who understand that our best efforts are filthy rags, for all of us who understand that doing it the best we could figure out, by following our own rulers, by doing it by our own desires. It's devastation. We're surrounded. We're overwhelmed. And there's no way out. For all of us who have faced the humiliation of being wretched sinners, there is a promise of peace. And there is a promise of one who will shepherd us. There is a promise of one who will feed us, protect us, and proclaim God's name to us. But if you are here this morning and you cannot identify with being wretched or with having failed, or you cannot identify with having no hope and being humiliated in your failure, if you still cling to your own rule and to your own way, if you still cling to your own majesty, if you still cling to your own authority in your life, then this baby born in Bethlehem has nothing to offer you. This baby born in Bethlehem has no restoration in store for you. The Bible is telling us about one who will come and will redeem. All throughout Scripture, back in Genesis chapter 3, we're told that the schemes of Satan and that the power of sin will be crushed. And then we're, we're told further on in Genesis, we're told that God will send one through Noah's son Shem. Then we meet Abraham. And we see that Abraham will be the ancestor of all of those who have faith. And then from Abraham, we see that there is a tribe named Judah who will have one come out of this tribe of Judah. And then as we look at the tribe of Judah, we find David. And we find the family of Jesse. And then now Micah is the only one who tells us to look at Bethlehem. And as the spotlight shines on Bethlehem, it's going to be 700 years before the swing of prophecy comes back around. And no longer are we told, but we see a baby born in Bethlehem. Let me remind you of what one of Micah's contemporaries, Isaiah, wrote about this same child. Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. 
upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You see, Isaiah saw a child being born. Micah said a child's going to be born. And this child is going to be the greater David. He's going to bring what even David could not bring. He's going to bring peace to all of God's people. What child is this? Let me finally answer that question. We jump over to the New Testament and we read there part of what has already been read this morning. And we see that the angels announce the birth of this baby born in Bethlehem. And the angels announce his birth and they say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill toward men. What child is this? Jesus Christ. Born to just a common carpenter and a teenage girl from Nazareth. But yet, born of eternity. Born of everlasting. Who brought peace to the earth. Brought peace to God's people. This is Jesus Christ. Born in Bethlehem born Savior of the world. He is the Good Shepherd. He is the Bread of Life. He is God the Son. He is Messiah. He is Emmanuel, God with us. This is Jesus Christ. He is the one you must look for. If you're looking for a place, if you're looking for peace, if you realize that you're a failure, if you realize you can't measure up and you'll never be able to do it on your own, there is a baby born in Bethlehem who can bring Peace and can bring a place to be with God and to be in God's people. This is what we celebrate this time of year. We don't sell it. We don't, we don't pretend that we know when Jesus was born on the calendar. But we celebrate his incarnation. That the eternal would break forth into time and would come and tabernacle with us and reveal God to us. Peace personified. God in the flesh. What child is this? It is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We praise God this morning for his word and for sending his own son to come take our place, to die for our sins that we might have peace with God for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much. Lord, first of all, that you, that you have spoken at all, Lord, to people like us. Lord, that you would send message, Lord, from common men like Micah, Lord, to a nation who really was uninterested and who didn't care to hear. But yet you are merciful and loving enough that you continually send message over and over again. And in your grace, you have preserved your word for us that we might have it to learn all that we need to know for life and godliness, that we might know you, that we might know the way to peace. Lord, as peace is so elusive, Lord, you have revealed it to us in the face of Jesus Christ. He is peace. And God, that is what you have brought to us in the incarnation. Lord, for a world struggling, striving, fighting always against our own failure and against our own fallen nature, you have brought peace to us, one who can connect us to yourself. And Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes to see the reality of who Jesus Christ is. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. 
He is our baby born in Bethlehem to be the Savior of the world. And it is good tidings. And it is peace on earth because of Him. Lord, I thank You for this body and I thank You for this time together. I pray, Lord, that You will be with us and meet our needs throughout this week. Let us live for You. Let us bring the light of Your glory into the world around us each day as we share the message of Jesus Christ our Lord. Be with us now. Bless us to be Your people. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. I appreciate your attention this morning to the Word.